Let's turn to his word and hear him speak through the preaching of the word of God. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Our text as we continue this series on the the glorious supremacy of Christ over all things. Let's read beginning in verse 19 down to verse 22. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness was the fullness of God to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind engaged in evil deeds yet He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Let's pray. It's if we know our sin it's hard to really believe that these words could be true that we could be presented before Almighty God, holy and blameless and beyond reproach, when we know what we were. We were separated from you. We hated you. And we loved our evil deeds. That was us. And yet you reconciled us to yourself through your Son. Oh, these words are true and we rejoice in them. And may you give us ears to hear and rejoice and believe. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Isaiah 59 verse 2. It lays out a sobering truth that we all need to be reconciled to God. He says this. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. See, sin has caused man to be at enmity with God. Enmity. It refers to a deep-seated hatred or animosity. The people or the person who is at enmity to God demonstrates it by their hostility Towards God. People can agree with God about many things, and therefore they can oftentimes think that they're, oh, no, I'm not at enmity with God. There's a lot of good things about God. James is the one, though, who tells us friendship with the world is hostility toward God. The world. Friendship with the world. What is the world? Well, in terms of the scriptures, the world consists of beliefs and values and morals that are in opposition and rebellion to God. God calls us to seek first his kingdom, to seek first his righteousness, but to instead pursue and cling to the ideals, the morals, the goals, the purposes of the world. That is to essentially declare war. On God. He goes on to say, James does, he says, therefore, right, the one who's at friends, 
who's friends with the world. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And the same warning is given in Romans 8, 7, where, which says that the mind set on the flesh, not the spirit of God, is hostile toward God. And so the question that you need to ask yourself this morning is this. Is, am I describing you? Am I describing you? Are you at enmity with God? Are you good friends with the world? Are you in line with its values, its ideals, its morals, its priorities? John tells us, he says, do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. See, love for God and love for the world are mutually exclusive. You cannot serve both the world and Christ. Jesus says no one can have two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. So the person who is at at enmity towards God needs one thing. If I'm describing you today, that you are friends with the world, You can't sit here and say, no, I'm not friends with the world when everything about you demonstrates a love for the world. Okay, so you need to be honest with yourself. And if that is describing you, then you are at enmity with God. And there is one thing that you need more than anything else. You need to be reconciled to God. And the only reason why I'm not still an enemy of God, me, is because He reconciled me to himself through Christ. And as a result of what Christ did on the cross, my many sins against God are no longer counted against me. Did God reconcile me because I finally got my act straight? Right? I I changed my ways. I, I started coming to church. Started being a good person. You know, that would make sense. It would make sense if that was the case, wouldn't it? That's probably how I would seek to go about it. In fact, I did. I did try to go about it that way. But see, that was not the case. And that was not how God reconciled me to himself. Romans 5.8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, God sent his son to die for me while I was still actively opposing him. My salvation, it didn't depend on me you know, meeting God halfway, making an effort to keep his commandments, trying to be as good as I could be. But God completed the work of my salvation when I was openly rebelling against him. You know what that's called? That's called grace. That's grace. Where do you see the essence of this kind of love, this kind of grace towards sinners? You see in what God gave. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John says elsewhere 
He says, in this is love. Not that, not that we loved God. But that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The Apostle Paul, he was an enemy of God. And he looked back after salvation. He looked back over his life and he saw himself as the chief of sinners. He wasn't just trying to make up a name for himself to make you think, wow, he's really humble. No, he saw himself as the chief of sinners because of the zeal for God that he had. He killed Christians. He delighted in throwing them into prison. And he this, this one who saw himself as the chief of sinners, he expressed how amazed he was at the love of Christ for him. He couldn't help but marvel. He said that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. See, if you're sitting here this morning knowing that you are at enmity with God, here is what the Lord wants you to know about him. He says this in Psalm 86, verse 5. He says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. See, the Lord's posture toward you who are at enmity with Him, He's not ready to condemn or smash or destroy he says he's ready to forgive. He's not looking for you to change your ways first. Here's what he's looking for you to do. To repent. To turn away from your sin. To change your heart towards your sin. And to put your faith in his son so that you might be forgiven. It was not while you it's not why we were doing good things. It was while we were enemies that we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. So no matter how great an enemy of God you may be, Christ is sufficient to reconcile you to God because He's supreme over all things. And that's what Paul is telling us here in this amazing passage in Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> Paul's declaring the supremacy of Christ to the Colossians because heretical teachers had come into the church. They were denying the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ. They were calling for the worship of angels. They were saying that salvation is possible, but only through secret knowledge that goes beyond just this simple gospel of faith in Christ. And so in response, Paul declares the supremacy of Christ. As God, he's the uncreated creator of all things. He's supreme over the church and over the dead. And the reason why he is declaring the supremacy of Christ is to be able to assure the Colossians of his sufficiency to reconcile them to God. Friends, we labored on this point last week. There is no forgiveness for you if Christ is not God. It's because of his supremacy as God that he is sufficient to reconcile sinners to himself. And so it's been my joy to preach about the supremacy of Christ over all things. 
Understanding the glorious supremacy of Christ is the key to every Christian's growth in Christ. You simply won't live for Christ as you should until you see him as he is. And it's because he's supreme over all things that he is sufficient to reconcile you to God. So the title of this sermon, which we began last week, more so just as an overview of what we had covered up to that point, it's the sufficiency of Christ in reconciling sinners to God. The sufficiency of Christ in reconciling sinners to God. What's going to, what is going to cause you to center your life around Christ? It's seeing his complete sufficiency as God in reconciling you to God. His complete, Christ's complete sufficiency as God to reconcile you to God. Now, the idea of reconciliation in the New Testament, it's about a change in relationship. In regard to our salvation, reconciliation explains what Christ did for us through his substitutionary death. He, on the cross, he took the place of others to be inflicted with the punishment and the penalty they deserved so that they could be pardoned. In, in theology, this is called penal substitution. Christ was being punished in our place so that we could be completely reconciled to God. This was God's plan of salvation. Son, I've given you a people, but they are separated from me. I want you to go and purchase that people with your blood. You're going to die in their place. You're going to be the Lamb of God for their sins. And you're going to take away their sins. And they're going to be your people who will proclaim your praise throughout all the ages. That's why He sent His Son. This is His plan. And this plan is unfolding. How do you become one of those people for whom God died? You believe the Gospel. You put your faith in His Son, the Savior whom He sent. But before we look at this glorious truth of reconciling you to God through faith in Christ, Paul first says that Christ will reconcile all things to God. The first point, Christ will reconcile all things to God. And this speaks to the all-encompassing scope of the reconciliation that Christ will accomplish. Through Christ, it pleased God, he says here in verse 20 of our text, he says it pleased God to reconcile all things to himself. So first, let's make sure that we understand what Paul means here by all things. Paul says in verse 16, if you look back up there, it says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And then in verse 17, he continues, He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And one of the most misused words, I think, in the English language today, and I'm sure there's many, one of the ones that's most used is that word literally. I hear it mainly being used like as it's an intensifier. It's a way of injecting drama into your statement. It's not enough to just simply say, Man, I was so upset. You have to say something like, I was literally about to explode. Instead of saying, oh, I was so scared. It's, I literally almost died. But in this case, 
in what Paul is describing about the result of Christ's death, I think it would be actually be appropriate to say Christ reconciled all things to himself. Literally every single created thing in existence in the entire universe. The intensifier here, literally, is spot on. There is not one thing that Christ has not reconciled to himself. See, when God the Son was finished creating all things, Genesis 1.31 says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That lasted until the fall, when Adam rebelled against God. And the perfect harmony between creatures and between all creation and the creator was destroyed. The creation, it says, Paul says, was subjected to futility. And as a result, the whole creation groans and suffers, Paul says. Don't ever think that sin is no big deal, friend. As a result of sin, one sin, disobeying God, all creation is in a constant state of frustration and disharmony. And the evidences of this disharmony in the universe, it's it's all around us. We hear about such things constantly in the news. Hurricanes, floods, earthquakes, tornadoes, and on and on it goes, right? There's black holes out in the universe that just suck everything around them into it. And they just, boop, are gone. We're all worried. If we get too close to a black hole, we're just going to be sucked into it. Don't worry, that's not going to happen. But it sounds like it could. The sun is cooling. The sea is warming. The sky is falling. And on and on it goes. If creation were a person, they would be a nervous wreck. They would be unable to rest. They'd be like pacing back and forth. They'd be looking out the window. They'd be, they'd be looking at their watch. They'd be like, when is it coming? When is it coming? And Romans 8.18 tells us what that something is that creation is looking for. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the Son of God. And this is referring to when Christ returns, when He glorifies all those who are His, the sons of God. And at that time, all the natural world will be restored as well. The changes, the changes that are coming to creation are stunning. They're stunningly dramatic from the world that we have known. All of our lives that even your father's 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 fathers have known. Isaiah describes it in chapter 11. If you want to turn there and follow me and just read this and just say, wow, I can't wait for this. I'm going to see this one day. Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9. Let me begin reading. You can follow along when you get there. <clears throat> Isaiah 11, verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear. They'll both graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child, they'll play by the hole of a cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
See, these changes, they're not going to just take place amongst creatures. They will extend out into all the created universe. Jump over to chapter 60 in Isaiah. Look at verse 19, Isaiah 60, verse 19. No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light. But you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and the days of your mourning will be over. Paul tells us that at the time of Christ's return, all creation will be set free from its slavery to corruption. See, the scope of reconciliation that Christ will bring about is universal. He'll restore the universe to a proper relationship with its creator. And after Christ's millennial reign, he will make all things new. The Lord says in Isaiah 65, verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. And speaking of the Lord's promise, Peter describes the new creation as as a place in which righteousness dwells. Doesn't that sound glorious? Doesn't that sound beautiful? People love to depict sin as fun. Righteousness is boring. See, that's friendship with the world. That's why God hates it. Lying to you. Sin is fun. Righteousness is boring. And they couldn't be more wrong. Only fools rejoice in things that they later regret. The times of greatest and deepest delight are always when I'm closest to God and I'm furthest away from my sin. And didn't John say in John 15, he said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy, Christ is saying, may be in you and that your joy may be made full. That's where joy is found. It's when, you, when you're far from your sin. The world says, oh, no, no, that's boring. Now, lest anyone wonder here that if God reconciling all things to Himself through Christ somehow means that everyone will be saved in the end. Well, this simply cannot be true, friends. All Scripture is God-breathed, right? All Scripture is breathed out by God. It means God is not going to contradict Himself in His own Word. And when we let Scripture interpret Scripture, it's clear by all things here that Paul means all things for whom reconciliation is possible. So we're not talking about the reconciliation of fallen angels. We're not talking about reconciliation of the devil. We're not talking about reconciliation of all those who have refused to believe on Christ because the scriptures are clear that their final destination is hell. And a day is coming when the Lord is going to say to all those who have rebelled against him, who have died in their sin, rejecting his pardon, freely extended to him in the gospel, He's going to say to them, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For what purpose? The purpose of eternal punishment. There's a sense, though, in which Christ, he will reconcile even fallen angels 
and unregenerate men to himself. How? Right? How, how is he going to reconcile them to himself? It's through judgment. You know, if a city is ravaged by those who seek to commit crimes and cause mayhem, well, it's the responsibility of the civil, civil authorities to do what? To make peace. How are they to make peace? Well, many voices today are saying, well, it's peace through appeasement. You just look the other way. You say, well, that doesn't measure up to this level of badness, so we'll just let it go. That's not, that's not how peace is established. Peace is not established by appeasing wickedness. Peace must be imposed. That's how peace is established. It is imposed. Peace is established in a city when the criminals are lawfully punished by the proper authorities. And that is how Christ will establish his peace throughout the entire universe. He will impose his peace upon all his enemies. See, Christ is the supreme ruler of the universe. God has put, he says, all things in subjection. Where, Christian? Under his feet. When David, what did David say in Psalm 110? He says, the Lord says to my Lord... There's two in view here. There's the Lord God and then then his Lord, which would be in reference to the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right feet until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. All Christ's enemies, death itself being the last one, will be cast into the lake of fire, Revelations 20 says. And then there will be peace. So Paul, he then goes from the general reconciliation of all things to the specific reconciliation of believers. And we look forward to that day when Christ will reconcile all things to God. But right now, you can rejoice, secondly, that Christ has reconciled you to God. He's going to reconcile all things, but you can rejoice right now that he's reconciled you to God. And in verses 21 to 22, Paul describes four ways that he has reconciled you to God. He's reconciled you marvelously, presently, vicariously, and completely. And I want to expand on all these lovely little adverbs. I love adverbs. Marvelously, presently, vicariously and completely. First, Christ has reconciled you marvelously. And I say marvelously because of what Paul is doing here. He is describing our past condition so that we will do what? We will marvel at the reconciliation that Christ has accomplished. He wants to impress upon the Colossians who are doubting if the gospel of a crucified Christ is sufficient to save them. Do we need some other knowledge? Can Jesus alone save? And Paul is saying, well, let me remind you about your past and what you used to be like before Christ reconciled you. He says in verse 21, he says, you were alienated. You were hostile in mind. You were engaged in evil deeds. So first of all, he says, They were alienated from God. They were estranged. 
They were separated. That's what the word means. They they were strangers to God, but not in the way that we are strangers to people, you know, like we've never met. See, if you don't know someone, they're a stranger to you. But to be estranged is intentional. See, when you're estranged from someone, you, you shut them out of your life. You, you cut them off from your circle. And as a result, they are like a stranger to you. And that perfectly described my relationship with God before I was saved. I shut him out. He was both strange and a stranger to me. And this word alienated, it's in the perfect tense in the Greek, which it's describing then our estrangement as a settled state. It wasn't reversible. Paul expands on this idea of estrangement in Ephesians when he calls them to remember that they were separate from Christ. They were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So God was far off. We, we, we couldn't be more pleased at that, too. That was our posture. There's God. And here's me, and that's the way I want it to stay. We wanted this estrangement. It wasn't just that we didn't know him or about him. We may not have known much. Or what we knew, it may have been skewed. It may have been wrong. We were taught wrongly or whatever. But what we did know, it led us to to separate ourselves from him. and, And we were good with that. I'm good. Now, next, Paul says they were hostile in mind. And the translation could also be hateful in mind. And so this gives explanation to why unbelievers are content to be alienated from God. Their thoughts and their attitudes towards God are hateful. See, if you were to ask the average person, why do you hate God? They they might be offended that you would even suggest such a thing. They would say, I don't hate God. See, they believe in God. I don't have anything against God. When it comes to God, I'm more neutral. But see, the Bible draws a line. The Bible draws a line. Christ draws a line. It says, you are either a God lover because He saved you from your sins, or you are a God hater because you don't want Him to rule over you. When they, what they really mean is that as long as they get to pick and choose the kind of God that suits their preferences, then they're good with Him. They are good with a God of their own making. And who wouldn't be? Are you going to create a God that's going to judge you? No, you're going to create a God that's going to accept you. And that's what you believe about God then. I think God's like this. How many times have you heard someone say, you know, I think God's like this. And you're thinking, I don't think that says that anywhere in the Bible. Why do you think that? Because I like that idea. I want God to be this way. So therefore he is. And you're willing to entrust your eternal soul to that thought, are you? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. See, I'm good with you over there, God of the Bible. I'm good over here with whatever little version of God I've created for myself. That's the world, friends. He sees their works is good. What I do is good. He's there when I need help. 
He's good. But for the most part, He leaves me alone. And I'm good with that. See, the moment you start describing God as He reveals Himself in the Bible, that's where the hostility begins to emerge. That's where the enmity, the hatred starts to come out. Such a God is... Your God's too strict. Your God's too harsh. Your God's too intolerant. Your God's too judgmental. And you're just reading verses from the Bible. What makes you think that's the way God is? Well, because He says that. They're going to push back. They're going to say they believe that as long as someone is sincere, as long as they're doing their best, that's good enough to get to heaven. The whole idea of the cross is offensive to them. Why? Because it implies they can't save themselves. Their good works aren't good enough. Who would be an enemy of a God who says, you know what? Do your best and don't worry. I grade on a curve. Everyone would love that God. He's cool. Like your college professor. You grade on a curve? I'm signing up. Because I don't really have to try very hard. See, that's why we feel no great need to be right with God. They've created a God of their own making. A God who suits their needs. So why are unbelievers unwilling to think rightly about God? The Bible says it's a result of something. It's the result of something. The Bible says what that something is. In Ephesians 4.17, it's because of the futility of their minds. It's because they're darkened in their understanding. The faculty of understanding that produces the thoughts. It's corrupted. There's a willful ignorance in man because there is a part of his being that's not functioning right. His mind is darkened about God as well as darkened about himself. It only thinks these false things. So this ignorance, it's, it's willful. It's due to a hardness of their heart. They want to stay ignorant because of their hard heart towards God. I'm good with you being over there. I know what you say about judgment and hell and sin, and I don't like it. So you stay over there. I'll stay over here, content with my own God. And so unbelievers are far from neutral towards God. They are hostile towards Him because they willfully think wrongly about Him. But there's another reason that unbelievers hate God. They hate Him and they resent His holy standards and His commands. Why? Because look what they're engaged in. Look what they're doing. He says evil deeds in verse 21. They're engaged in evil deeds. Here's what Jesus said in John 3. He said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. They were engaged in evil deeds. For everyone who does evil, everyone who's engaged in evil deeds, hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his evil deeds that he's engaged in and and loves will be exposed. So not only are they willfully ignorant, but they willfully love their sin. Romans 1.18 kind of describes this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, meaning they do know the truth, but they suppress it in unrighteousness. See, this is not ignorance. It's hateful wickedness is what it is. For even though they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. These are the people that God will reconcile. These are the people that God sends his son to die for and to die in their place. They're estranged from him. They want nothing to do with him. They hate him and they love to do the very opposite of the things that he says. They love their evil. And yet Christ will bear the offense that broke the relationship with God and estranged them from him. And he will do this not because they finally saw the errors of their way and said, you know, I'm sorry, I've made a mess of things in my life. No, he'll die while they are still fighting and hating and despising him. How amazing and incredible is God's love for us. Christ has marvelously reconciled us to God. Second, Christ has reconciled you to God presently. We should be utterly amazed that after describing us in all of our hateful sinfulness towards God, that Paul would then say that although you were that way, he says he has now reconciled you. He is reminding the Colossians that their present experience is that of being reconciled to God now. It's not some future hope. It's a present reality. He has reconciled them. He's not just made reconciliation possible. They are actually personally and presently reconciled to God. He's boasting in Christ here. What an amazing Savior we have. Let me tell you about the people that Christ reconciles to God. All, all those that He reconciles there were estranged from Him. They were far off. They wanted nothing to do with Him because they hated Him and they loved the sin that He hates. Even though this was how they were, He reconciled them. Every last one. And right now, right now they're at peace with God. Friend, you don't have to wonder if reconciliation is possible someday. It's possible right now. And though you came in here far off from God as a result of your love for sin and the life of sin you've lived, you can leave here reconciled to God. That's what he's telling you. The Son in these last days is speaking to you. I can reconcile you. I'm ready to forgive. Are you ready to repent and believe? Now let me tell you, Why I can say this to you. The reason that you can be marvelously and presently reconciled right now is because you were vicariously reconciled through Christ. This term, vicarious, it means done in place of or instead of someone else. He says in verse 22, He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death. Verse 20, He says he reconciled all things, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Christ brought brought about our reconciliation with God. He made peace with God. How? Through his death for us. Our offense against God was great. Our sin had separated us from him. And not only were we far off, we were running in the opposite direction. We were chasing our sin despite the fact that it was leading us right off of a cliff. And no matter how much trouble it got us into, no matter how much pain it caused, no matter how many relationships it cost, we just kept on pursuing it and kept on pursuing it. Despite that it had never satisfied us, we loved it. 
and we were too ashamed to admit that we were enslaved to it. It was a master to us. It was a harsh master, and we did its bidding. And the gulf between us and God, it was so vast that there was no way, no way for us to get back, even if we wanted to, and we didn't want to. We were lost. We were helpless. And there was absolutely nothing that we could do to remove the offense before holy God. It was unmovable. It was insurmountable. We were not only without God, we were without hope. And while we were still wallowing in the mire of our sin and hatred for God, despising Him, still selfish, still loving our sin, God sent His Son into the world to seek for us, to find us, and to save us. And did we welcome Him? No. We said, give us Barabbas. Shall I release the son? No, give us Barabbas. That picture is just how hatefully ungrateful we were to him. Yet we were that bad. When you see that part in the Gospels, you need to think, I would be right there saying, give me Barabbas. And what came next? And crucify him. See, there was no way that you would ever come to him. God had to intervene. Christ had to come to you. But not only did He come, He vicariously atoned for your sin through His body by death. You created the the offense. He paid the penalty. No one took His life. He laid it down. He was not a helpless victim. He willingly offered it up to God as a sacrifice for you, the Lamb of God. And the Father loved me for this. I love that you're laying down your life for those who hate me. Amazing. See, Paul describes what God would send Christ to do for us. He says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He says in verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5, he says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All of this came from God. He's not doing this for everyone in the world. He's doing it for all those in the world whom his spirit regenerates and convicts and converts through uh, through former rebels. That's us. As we go about being his ambassadors in the word, in the world, uh, faithfully carrying out what he has given to us, the ministry of reconciliation. And we're preaching the word of reconciliation that's been committed to us. See, that's you and that's me, Christian. That's what we are. We are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. And so what are we to do? We're to beg. We're to beg sinners on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. That's what I'm doing right now. If you're out here separate from God, I'm begging you as His ambassador, be reconciled to God. He's ready to forgive. Now, Christ has reconciled us to God marvelously, presently, and vicariously through His death. And as a result, we are reconciled completely. He says in verse 22, He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. See, the offense that caused our separation from God, it will be totally, utterly, completely removed. And this is the same result that we read about in Jude when he says that he 
he, that one day we will stand in the presence of His glory blameless and with great joy. He says we will be holy. We will be fully separated from our sin and fully separated or set apart to God. God will make it possible to finally fulfill His command to be holy as I am holy. And in that day, God will see you as holy as His Son because you are in His Son by faith. He says that we will be blameless, meaning without blemish. And this is how Christ was referred to as as the spotless Lamb of God. See, no matter how sinful you are or were in this life, reconciliation is going to give you a blameless character before God. And then lastly, he says that you will be beyond reproach before Him. And this goes just beyond being blameless. But beyond any accusation whatsoever. See, not even the accuser of the brethren, Satan himself, can bring a charge against those whom God has chosen to reconcile to himself. How can you not cherish? How can you not love and serve this one who is supreme over all things and thus is sufficient to reconcile you to himself? At the same time, how can we not be reconciled to those who have offended us? He came to you. He found you. He sought you so that by his death, you would be reconciled to God. If Christ approached you this way, who had sinned greatly against Him, how can you not do the same with those who have offended you, even even rightly offended you? Their sin against you is nothing compared to how you sinned against Christ. And the only way that you won't do this You won't allow the offense to remain, but you'll reconcile with that person. The only way that that you won't do this is because you forget. You forget what Christ did for you. If you are at odds with someone, especially someone in this church, and you're estranged from them, they walk down the hallway and you go the other way. They're coming towards you. You've got nowhere to go, so you duck into the kitchen. And you don't want to talk to them. You shine them on. Right? The only way that you do that is because you forget what Christ did for you. Don't let that be the case today. During the 17th century, Oliver Cromwell, he was the Lord Protector of England, and he sentenced a soldier to be shot for his crimes. The execution was to take place at the ringing of the evening curfew bell. But that night, at curfew, the bell did not sound. The soldier's fiancé had climbed up into the belfry and clung to that great clapper of the bell to prevent it from striking. And when she was summoned by Cromwell to account for her actions, she wept. She showed him her, her bruised and her bleeding hands. And Cromwell's heart was touched. And he said, Your lover shall live because of your sacrifice. Curfew curfew shall not ring tonight. And like that condemned man, we are all rebels against God and we are under the sentence of death. But he loved us so much that he sent his son. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ Son of God, fully God, to intervene in our behalf. And He saved us 
at great cost to himself. If skeptics had questioned Jesus after his resurrection, all he would have to do is show them his hands, his bruised, his nail-pierced hands. They were proof enough that he has given himself for man. So, I beg you, be reconciled to God. And as one to whom Christ is reconciled to God by his death, be reconciled to all others. Let's pray. This is why we glory in the cross. Because it was there that our sins were paid for by the one who loved our souls even while we were enemies and estranged from him. Oh, Spirit of God, further exalt Christ all the more as sovereign and as supreme over all things and sufficient to save by bringing that sinner who came in here estranged from you and reconciling them to yourself. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name.